Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins for a change. Employers, consumers, primary care physicians, outcomes, shareholders, even our communities all win with costs dropping 20 to 60%. This unstoppable direct contracting movement bypasses the big middles with their crooked game boards, devious rule book, rigged dice, and purchased referees. I'm Rob Barshop, and I'm glad you're here. page document is more valuable than the Magna Carta, the Rosetta Stone, and the Gutenberg Bible combined. This two-page bill is called the CARES Act. You may have heard of it because Senator Chuck Schumer called it a Marshall Plan for hospitals two years ago. This document is worth $175 billion to hospitals and has created by the greatest lobby on the planet, hands down, the American Hospital Association. They have no rival for audacity and brilliance in a pandemic. Valued for $4,375,000 for every letter in the bill, it resulted in a two near unanimous vote series from our auctioned and paid for Congress to pass this Marshall Plan for hospitals. But lobbyists left a few bit tidbits out of the bill when explaining it in their white paper. Not mentioned to Congress, for example, was that over 200 billion in strategic reserves were already held in place by the bigs here in America. And they didn't mention that they were gonna furlough like mad and that those were used to massively shave labor costs because nothing in the bill prohibited it. And the bigs wonder why a great resignation right after this pandemic. Well, every admission also, and this is the scary part, nosebleeds and sprained ankles and stitches were likely upcoded for COVID for about 18 months due to a CMS ruling stating that they were not going to audit anything COVID. So from March, 2019 till 18 months later, there were zero audits. That's like the IRS saying, we're not gonna audit your taxes for 18 months. What do you think would happen? So because there were no flus coded during those two flu seasons, we know everybody upcoded. It's a key bread and butter code flu season for every hospital, every PCP, everybody knows this listening to this show. So either the flu disappeared for two years or legal fraud was overlooked. And if they upcoded the flu, we know they upcoded the stitches too. If you didn't upcode, in fact, the entire kitchen sink in a no audit window for 18 months, you were a fool in a hospital. Illegal, no, immoral, yes, all day long. But did you see any press on this? Any 60 minutes reports? No, you're not going to see anything on this. Tests routinely charged out at $2,000 to $10,000 for something that we now know you can get at Walgreens for $17, a PCR test. That was another gaming that was going on. And there's so many other games and tricks and sleight of hand and scams and gambits. We'll ever, never, never, never know what 80% of those games were and what the hospital bills didn't report because hospitals are 80% wrong anyway in good times. So we know now, 18 months later, that hospitals did just find this pandemic without a Marshall Plan. They didn't need this federal largesse, our tax dollars. How do we know? Well, here's exhibit A in the legal case is that the largest for profit, HCA Healthcare returned all six billion of their dollars. I've seen press reports that they returned a billion five, but I know they returned six billion. Their margins as a for-profit system are considerably lower 
than the 70% of the bigs that are nonprofits. So imagine if they didn't need the 6 billion, the nonprofits certainly didn't need the 6 billion um, because they pay no federal, state, county, city or personal property taxes. My hat is off to HGA for doing that. And another smaller group called UHS returned their 188 million as well. Very patriotic and lovely, they did that. And for some reason in the game, the Federal Reserve Board somehow was in this too and they returned all their unstated billions that they didn't divulge, but somehow they were getting some of this largest too. All the reported financials now indicate two years later that the bigs flourished. No, they way more than flourished. What's a bigger word than flourished? They thrived, I don't know, but they did great during this pandemic without the funds. And the fact the bigs used that Marshall Plan funding to go on an unprecedented buying spree. Now we only have data on year one of the pandemic, but they inhaled and ingested like cocaine, 108,000 independent physicians, mostly in the South where I live, because you can tell by my accent, who were suffering massively with no patient volume for three to eight months. So we pay taxes six ways besides our actual tax dollars that were given away to the bigs. Because we didn't really give any tax dollars away. We borrowed money from China and other borrowing nations that are taking our treasuries on. Number one, once you sell your practice to a big, you're no longer independent. You're going to overnight increase all of your billing by two to four times for every code you're billing out because hospitals can get away with that once they take over a practice. Number two, another tax we pay is this, and it's a silent one, is all of those doctors are now pressured to refer those patients back to their masters upon the plantation on the big hill. So the referrals back in at the daily rates higher than our local five-star resorts. So you're going to be paying much higher having been referred into a hospital than a lower cost place of service. A third silent but deadly tax literally adds burnout to the doctors and nurses in support. Doctors that work for bigs have much higher burnout rates than folks that do not, and especially in DPC where there's essentially no burnout. And let's add in medical errors, another tax, but it's really a cause of death. Did you know, y'all, that superbugs killed twice as many people as COVID did over the past two years in a pandemic? Where's the number one place you catch superbugs in America? Hospitals, number one source. Another quiet tax is we've had a useless test because, again, hospitals are famous for doing useless diagnostics that make no sense. My son, who's worked at a hospital and the Harvard system basically says that it's for three reasons. And we all know the three reasons is you don't want to upset a patient who wants something that's ridiculously worthless. You don't want to upset a referring doctor. And sometimes you just do it to cover your buns for legal purposes. Useless tests. That happens when you go to work for a hospital. And let's throw in the overtreatment that we know happens to 10 to 20% of all surgery and maybe more. We have an expert back again for round three to answer that question. Adding zero, by the way, to improved outcomes when you overcut. So what's the quid pro quo with this Marshall Plan? Zippo, no strings attached. I don't know why HCA returned the money. I don't know why UHS returned the money or the Fed returned the money. But to make, I guess the uh, string attached is don't drown in your new sea of free cash. That's the caveat. Don't party too visibly in this victory that the HCA won for you. And let's talk about the actual Marshall Plan going back in history to the 1940s, because inflation adjusted, it was less money than this Marshall Plan for the hospitals. And what do we get for that Marshall Plan? Trading partners and allies for 70 years now with Japan, Germany, Italy, and Austria. 
The CARES Act was the greatest global heist ever in broad daylight and in a pandemic, a perfectly disgusting camouflage way to hide it. Then the upcoming games were more binge-worthy than the Hunger Games. Why rob banks? That's where the money is? No. Today, rob our treasury in a panic. That's where the real money was in 2019 and going forward. Today, we welcome back for round three, Dutch Rojas to rejoin the show. He founded Sano Surgery and was involved with Everyone Health until he just sold it. So we are the first interview after the Wall Street Journal to talk to Dutch and see what makes sense in direct contracting now that he is an investor. Dutch, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Love your show. I listen to every episode. Thank you. As you know. Well, thank you, Dutch. Well, I, I, I love uh, watching you too because you give me inspiration. So congratulations on your sale, first of all. Thank you. Thank you. We're pretty excited. But I think we're more, uh, we're, we're more excited about the future. Well, let's talk about that. What is it that is missing in the ecosystem of direct contracting that needs capital? Because we talked on a, on a show before, if Cigna, if Optum are investing on the front end, the back end is going to be a destruction of whatever innovation happens in direct contracting. So we want to see strategic money like Dutch Rojas as an angel and finding other VCs that are like-minded to really change healthcare, not uh, to put something in place to kill it later. What, what is, what's missing in the ecosystem today? Um, well, I think certainly a uh, e-commerce, you know, direct to patient or direct to consumer. I call it a direct to patient, but traditionally it's been called direct to consumer site. Um, certainly we're about to release that uh, called shophealthcare.com. Um, I think that's going to be a game changer. You've got, uh, let, let's call it six to eight million people who belong to um, religious co-ops, right? That you and I are very familiar with. And um, they're constantly looking for uh, pre-negotiated prices. And I think we can deliver a valuable solution for them while reducing expenses and giving independent positions who we support uh, more business, right? And more leverage against the carriers and the large hospitals. It seems to me like the consumer is a wide audience because there's a lot of consumers, we estimate at least half, are basically functionally uninsured, meaning they have this massive deductible they can't afford because they don't have liquidity. So, and, and you're the first guy to bring that to my attention with your famous quote I've quoted many times that if you have $450 in the bank and a $2,000 deductible, do you even have insurance anymore? And that's, that's just says it all. That's yes. You know what? I'm so glad you said that because I can't get, you know, I tell people these people are functionally uncovered. Right. And they're like, no, they're functionally uninsured. And I'm like, no, they're not functionally uninsured. They don't have insurance. Yes, they don't. And they're paying a lot of money to not have insurance. Exactly. Yeah. So I estimate that there's somewhere, depending on if you're a red or blue follower, that there's 30 to 40 million people who would much rather pay cash. Right. And then you've got the, a, let, let, let's call it 80% of the population that does have health benefits coverage. Um, but they, they'll never meet their deductible and they need an x-ray or a lab test during the year or this or that. And they're paying five to 10 X. I mean, how much easier is it if you have a, a mobile website where you can go, I need a lab test. Oh, quest has those lab core has those. And here's all the local independents that have those. And they're $3. Like it's so much easier to do that. I agree hundred percent. The federal reserve says there's about 104 million people working in America. And if they, if you look at who they're insuring with wives and kids, it's about 145 million. 
that are part of this self-insured uh, self population. So out of that, roughly half of them are $20 an hour or sorry, $15 an hour or less, and 80% are under $30 an hour, meaning Again, this is people that probably don't have a massive amount of liquidity. And we have 110 million people that have some kind of medical debt. It was 80 million when we started this show, which is four years ago. So just I'm just come like spitballing. I think your number of 30 million is super conservative. I think it's got to be much more than 30 million. It's got to be 40, 50, 60 million that are currently insured with a self-insured employer or any other employer. And they just they have something, it's a pig in a poke. They can put lipstick on it all day and they simply can't afford it and they're paying. Well, I think you, you, you probably have more stats than I do, but how many people don't have access or better yet, they don't go see a physician because they don't know what the price is and they're afraid. They're like, you know what? That's just going to be too much money. I'm just not even going to look tens, at it. How, how many people is that? Tens of millions. I, mean, it's, it's I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's tens of millions that also have to make a decision between groceries and life-saving medications. It's tens of millions of Americans. Well, now that, we, now that we've got, you know, 10% inflation, I mean, you know, you're trying to pay. I was in California for three days, $6.83 a gallon. You think people are going to pay that? They couldn't pay $3. Now they're paying that, and now they're trying to go to the doctor? Come on. I know. Give me a break. I know. Well, the 10% can, but it's insane. 90% cannot. Yeah, the, the fancy people in the Silicon Valley can do it. Okay, so yeah. so the they also live in $4 million houses. So let's, let's agree that the gap, enormous gap, is if you can get a consumer app, and now they can buy healthcare more affordably. Tell me what you're doing on the other side of that app to give them that delivery of that promise. All the contracts that we've negotiated with independent physicians and physician-owned facilities will be made available. So we went back to the physicians and asked them. Some, some don't want to have their prices in public. We totally understand. Uh, there's reasons for it, right? Um, some personal, some are, well, the carriers might get upset or they might figure it out or whatever else, but it doesn't matter. We've got uh, 48 states. We've got coverage in the 300 largest cities. And everything between labs, radiology, gastroenterology, and PT, along with musculoskeletal, we have covered. And so I think it's a great starting point. It won't be the end, but it's a wonderful starting point. And I think it matches with everything that those who believe in free market principles agrees with. I needed a colonoscopy. I had to make four different phone calls. You know, my dad died of colon cancer. Yeah, terrible. It was ridiculous. And finally, terrible. I did find a solution that was going to take cash, but it was a lot of work on my end. And most people don't know to ask, what yeah. do I have to, like, what are the facility fees? What are the anesthesiology? Oh, you, you got to make a separate phone call for that. Most people don't know to ask those questions. No. And that's the kind of thing that I think the site, well, I mean, at least the, we, we've, I don't know, we've got like 6,800 pages of content to help people understand what's going on, why this is a problem, how it's solved. So I think, look, we've done this work. You know, I've been in this, in this particular business since 2008. I mean, before that, I built surgery centers. So I think we're well-equipped to help give people educational help and then also give people a delivery mechanism, right? So will it be perfect day one? I met, I suspect not, but can we iterate on top of that? I'm sure we can. You know, Amazon wasn't what it is today right away. I'm going to assume this app is free, Dutch. Is it, is it of no cost? Oh, sure. The, Absolutely. Okay. Sure. And I'm really targeting the co-ops. Those are the people I'm targeting first. 
because if you like, I'm a member of a co-op and when I call the co-op and just for fun, I'll say, because uh, they don't know who I am. I'll say, you know, I'd really like to get an appointment with a nephrologist. Can I get one? And they're like, well, you have to call yourself, negotiate your own price. And I'm like, well, what price are you willing to pay? Well, we'll pay whatever the best price is that you can get. And this is somebody with, you know, 200,000 plus members. And I'm like, that really isn't working. You know, because we get these calls every day. And although we only, we, as a business, we help employers, we probably help between 200 and 300 cash pay payers a week, a week. And those are generally speaking, people that we've met, right, over the last 10 years who go, hey, if I pay up front, can you find me a deal? Well, we already have a deal. So we'll just tell you what the price is and then we just negotiate. All right, we just get it done. So I think doing it by doing it manually turned into, well, can we just automate this process for everybody? Because that would just be a lot easier. That's ridiculous is the special, the yeah, the specialists that are out there are completely blithely unaware. The doctors themselves are blithely unaware that they have a cash pay rate at all of their practices because they work for a corporation or they work for a hospital, they work for a PE group, and they don't have any idea that they actually have a rate that they can quote and that they don't, doctors have no idea what to talk to me about when I bring up, I want to get a colonoscopy for cash. They're like, well, that's the back end. I don't do the back end. Okay, well, that's fine talk to the CEO and, or have him give me a call and I can work it out with him because I'm sure he would much rather take my 1500 bucks than, you know, take a promise to pay in six to eight weeks, you know, with a prompt pay statutes getting completely ignored in Texas. Um, and maybe a recoupment, maybe a kickback, who knows, uh, maybe it would preauthorize him correctly. Maybe the bill had a, a not I dotted correctly. I mean, they're going to take my cash delightedly just give me a right. And nobody there could do it. Um, you know, it is interesting, though, you said that because a lot of people, a lot of physician offices, and I really do mean a lot, you know, out of 10 calls, I make six of them, the, the, the doctor's front desk, the billing department, or the physician themselves, depending on the size of practice, will say, we don't have a cash rate. What insurance do you have? And I'm like, you don't even know what you're asking, right? And so it's a matter of not being condescending, but being very kind and articulate and explaining to them what they've just said to you and how you've heard it and then re-explaining it. What we've found is, look, I've got probably a thousand plus locations that now do colonoscopies, whether screening or diagnostic for around a thousand dollars. And that includes our fee. So it's not like this is impossible, right? I tell everybody, if I can do it and I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, like this ought to be something we ought to be able to solve pretty quickly. Yeah, well, well, congratulations on shaving $500 a week after I needed it. I should have called. I didn't think to call you, Dad. <laughs> you I, I talked to you the week well, before. Well, or your best friend, Dave Berg. You could have called Dave. No, Dave did it Dave's the best a master he could. Negotiator. They did the best he could. It happened It happened to me with yep. Cairo. When I first started, I was the first Texas. I was a patient number of N, number one in Texas when he first, you know, when I started with him five years ago. And so yep. I went to the first chiropractor, which was a local franchise. He had negotiated cash rate. His people got a good deal for me. I went in, they said, sorry, we don't take that insurance. I said, it's not insurance, it's cash. You see this QR code, you're gonna put that in your phone and it's gonna pay you cash instantly. There's no insurance here. Well, sir, we don't recognize that. I said, can I talk to the chiropractor because we've already worked this out ahead of time. And you know, y'all are at the front are very nice people. You have no idea what you're talking about. Let me talk to the boss. Well, no, he doesn't need to be talking to patients yep. right now. I'm going, but you're shielding him from his cash pay and you have no idea. 
Yeah, and it's sad because, you know, you and I hear every day from physicians who are trying to get free of the burdens of third-party payers, right? And so we're doing that work, and yet we still talk to physicians who push back. And I tell them, I'm like, look, I'm trying to make your life easier, not more difficult. Okay, let's talk about medications, because if you're covering all the other services you cover, I call it the five fingers of the glove. You've got imaging, you've got labs, you've got specialists. I hopefully have primary care figured out with somebody like Dave, but what is your solution for meds at this time? Are you still looking for that solution? Uh, I don't even deal with drugs. I know nothing about medications. I don't touch them. I don't mess with them. Nothing. Uh, I, I heard a rumor recently that Mark Cuban's going to solve that problem. So I'll let the billionaire figure that out. I'm busy. I'm busy working on e-commerce for medical treatments and services. And then, uh, as you've heard me talk about for a long time, I was in New York last week, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, working on our exchange. And so we are building a futures and options exchange so that large self-funded entities can begin buying everything they need for the next three to five years. I'm going to take away and disrupt what the carriers are doing. Um, you know, and you kind of need a big guy to support you in doing that. And so that's one of the reasons we sold so that we could get bigger support from bigger institutions and they're making it super easy. Like they call people, I walk in, do a presentation. They go, oh yeah, yeah, we can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, we understand so, what you're saying. That so makes walk, a ton of sense. Yeah, walk me through a transaction. I'm going to have with a thousand employees, 12 labor and delivery guaranteed uh, over the next... No, why do you? Yeah, it's probably more like it's probably more like we have ten thousand employees or twenty thousand employees, or we're a private equity company that has a portfolio of two hundred fifty thousand employees, and we have all their data, right? So we have all their utilization data. We're reviewing. Um, we've got about six hundred fifty employers now, and so we're reviewing and analyzing that data. Um, we've gotten it now over the last six months, where we not just we don't just have a year. Right now we have three, four, and five years of data. So you can normalize it, i.e., you know, they did, uh, for example, 10 MRIs one year, one the next year, 100 the year after, right? You can normalize that data, get an average. And then you can do basics like, hey, we're going to take this book and, you know, the average carrier price in the location that these companies exist is, we're just going to pick a number. Let's say a diagnostic colonoscopy is $5,000, right? Which is about right. And we know we can deliver it for $1,000, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to buy futures contracts or obligations on those for the next three or four years. And we'll do business with the, with the seller and we'll sign agreements and we'll get that done. And so what happens is we have that, those colonoscopies in our book. And when we want to use them, we can use them. And that's the first step in this process. Now, the options are a little bit more difficult, as is trading them, right, when it's all said and done. I think that'll be two or three years from now. But as far as buying in advance, helping the, the seller sell and the buyer buy, that's the process we're concentrating on today. Okay, so let's let's dig down on that. If I'm a surgery center, sure. are you saying I'm going to guarantee you um, Surgery Center of Arizona three hundred surgeries next year is that how you guarantee it on the yes cell? okay yeah we don't I'll we don't guarantee them we just buy them we just contract for them we say whether we do them or not we we're going to pay you for them okay and if i'm going to pay you 30 right, or 40 we, or 50 cents on the dollar for cash now they're going to still sell it to me at that thousand dollar 
Well, let's go to Colon Austria yeah. since you brought that up. They're still going to sell to me at the thousand dollars, even though I paid three hundred. You paid three hundred dollars for it and sort of secured that right, right? Is that how that works? Well, I we negotiate different pricing as it goes further out. Yeah. So let's say in year two they go, well, you know, we think costs are going to go up. There's right inflation. Uh, CPI generally is at three percent. We think, you know, now we want to charge a thousand thirty dollars. Okay, great. We'll lock that in. Right. I think the play that we found traditionally, this is why it works, is that the independent physicians who want care to move away from the hospitals keep lowering their prices year over year. And so when we look at the pricing that we have over the next, call it 36 to 60 months, it's less than the present value of the pricing today. And so if everyone would have listened to me, right, like I'm being serious, if everyone would listen to me three years ago, right, they'd be paying less over the next five years, but a lot of people didn't, so they're not, but we could have. And so now large employers are going, hey, well, this guy's been right for the last five years, so perhaps we ought to listen. So now we're helping large institutional buyers buy medical treatments and services they need over the next three to five years. And then we've locked in the prices. And so, yeah, you pay a little bit upfront, but then you're obligated to pay at the end of the day. Now. The reason we can't do it with smaller employers yet, you referenced it, is because they don't have the AAA credit, right? Like somebody's going to take money from, let's just make up something, Comcast, GE, IBM, right? They take money from them and they go, oh yeah, we'll do that contract with you. But if you're a small business like me, they go, eh, you're going to pay me this money in five years? Well, maybe, right? But they can't really rely on that, i.e. like quality of earnings report, right? Like eh, well, maybe he's a B credit guy. But these are all AAA rated companies that can then make those promises, right? And they have to go through a whole process. But I think what it will do is it will begin to take business away from the carriers. And networks, as you and I know them, will eventually be destroyed this way. Because what if you and I had access to a screen and any time if we were the HR director three years from now, we said, oh, well, you know what? I need a kidney transplant. Well, let me see. Well, these people in Boston are rated number one for this type of kidney transplant at this, you know, at, uh, oh, we've got, well, you know, this patient is at this demographic, at this uh, duration of cancer, they have the best outcomes. I mean, imagine if you could see that kind of quality. And well, that, that but that's what equities do today. That's what commodities do today. Why can't we have that with healthcare? Healthcare is a commodity. I'm not talking about the doctor being commodity. I'm talking about the end result being a commodity. And that's where we're going to help push it towards. Okay. So, so finishing out the colonoscopy analogy, and then I want to get to the Dutch Rojas leapfrog quality measurement. How do you measure these quality metrics? But um, if now, okay, so now I'm Comcast. I know I'm going to buy 700 colonoscopies over the next three years. So I, you're, you've agreed to pay 1,000 or 1,050 or 1,000. Uh, 100 after one in, zero, one in three years, is, is Comcast able to buy that future for 700, 600, 500 in advance? Is that, is that the markup? What does the spread yes. look like? Okay, got it. Yeah, they're, they're able to buy it for significantly less. And remember, we're only working today with independent physicians, with physician-owned, because you and I, I think, as a collective, want physician-owned facilities to start doing better and having stronger leverage against 
you know, the bigs. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So, and the bigs can't deliver the pricing. You know, if I if I go to a UCSF, uh, they're not, or a Sutter, they're not, you know, or Baylor Scott and White, where I'm sitting today, like they're not going to do that. You know, they'll they'll have to have 500 meetings before you know they can scratch their rear ends. Like it's not going to work. Yeah, makes complete sense. Okay, let's talk about the leapfrog equivalent of the Detrohaus metric for centers of excellence. I believe that most of the 640 surgery centers you work with are some you know degree of black, white, or, or let's call it green, yellow, and red is a better indicator of places mm-hmm. you want to go to, places you want to be careful with, and places you want to avoid. What is your metric for determining what is the best centers of excellence for surgery, just for starters in surgery in America? How do you, Detro, has to determine what LeapFrog calls an A or B or C rating? First, I don't do centers of excellence. I think that term is long outdated and uh, it was something Walmart did that was wonderfully innovative in the 70s and 80s, but I think it's bupkis today. Um, what I what I'm after is a couple of things. One, we uh, tie into everybody's EMR. I want to see what the ratios are. So we've got like kind of a three pillar process. Uh, I want to see the ratio. So here's what a ratio example is. Um, a patient calls and then they're scheduled. And then I want to know who actually shows up and then how soon do they schedule them for surgeries. So we've encountered hospitals and physician owned facilities, um, mostly MSK and pain, right? Interventional pain. where literally uh, 10 patients will call in for a new patient appointment on Monday and on Friday they're in surgery, right? So you've got 10 new patients and 10 new patients are in surgery. Well, that, there can't, that can't be a high quality deal, right? That's just a money-making operation, right? That's bupkis. And then you've got the converse of that where we've seen through their EMR where it's one out of 10. Well, that can't be right either, right? And so by specialty, we've laid out how we measure this and what the best ratios are because I want to understand what they're doing. Number two, we do a background check on all physicians. In all 50 states, there are physicians who will leave. Let's pick on the state of Indiana. I don't mean to, but that's what happened a couple of weeks ago. They'll leave Indiana and go practice in Texas. Why? Because states don't track reciprocity, right? So if you look up a doctor in Texas at Baylor Scott and White, they're happy to hire them right? Because they'll cover the tail coverage for this doctor that just came from Indianapolis and killed people. They're happy to do that. Well, I want to know that they went to Indianapolis and killed someone. So we track the background checks. I know for a fact that nobody else does that. The bukas don't do it. Uh, and certainly the startup world doesn't do that because they don't have the ability, the leverage, or, or the expertise to do it. Um, and third, then we track the regular quality metrics. So I'm really high on uh, infection rates, I'm high on fall rates, and I'm high on the pass-through rate. Pass-through rate being you show up at an ASC and then you need to be delivered to a hospital. Like, I want to know exactly what's going on. And then we do a metric called follow-up care. How many days post-procedure, depending on demographic, are the patients feeling better? Are the patients doing better? And are the patients released from care? Right? And so that's not like a, you could just do that. We've been doing this since 2008, or I have, right? And so it's a process of getting all that data together. And then, as you know, using the data to actually start making some reliable uh, conclusions, testing those conclusions, and then making sure that they actually mean something. What I want to be able to do, go ahead. 
No, I'm of the impression, Doug, that, uh, Doug, Dutch, that you have a way of measuring the physicians themselves individually, not just the centers for their operational systematic approach, but for the docs themselves, who are the best and the worst out there. You have some kind of a algorithm for that. We do, you? but I don't, but I don't love it. Uh, I don't love CMS's look at docs. I don't really love anyone's quality metrics on individual physicians. If anyone says they have it right, they can go ahead and call me at 602-777-0101 because I've yet to see anything that's any good. Now, it's really difficult to do. There are so many things that can go wrong. Look, I've spent you know 15 years of my life in a surgery centers, right? And you can take a really healthy patient and keep them really healthy and say you have great outcomes. You can take a really bad patient and refuse care for them. And so your numbers will look really good. Like there's a lot of movement in these numbers and you have to know the games they play and who's doing what. So I'm always on the lookout for additional metrics. I'm always on the lookout for higher quality scores. Uh, I think the ASC world and the physician world is really difficult, which is why we kind of started building our own. You know, it's bizarre in the, sur in the surgery world. And it just kind of shocked. I had to go see three different periodontists for a different crazy reason um, in the last few months. And they all touched my arm while they were talking to me, like they're my buddy, you know, like they're. And I, the third one was such a funny guy. I said, did you learn that actually in some type of a CME class to touch the arm? And therefore, <laughs> I'm going to give you a higher rating. And he goes, in fact, I did. And in fact, all the smart ones do it. The dumb ones don't do it. He goes, it's just actually salesmanship. He goes, it has nothing to do with medicine. But you're going to give me a higher rating if I touch you and look in the eye and smile at you than if I don't touch you. So we all do it, or at least the guys that know what they're doing, the gals know what they're doing. So customers, consumers are terrible metric to determine how good a doctor is because we fall for the smile and the shiny, you know, white teeth and the nurses that really work behind the scenes in those surgery centers in, you know, behind, it's usually the guy who has no personality. Who's the best doctor they're going to send their kids to. That's right. I mean, look, just to give you for instance, right. Um, there are a couple of really good um, hysterectomy surgeons in this country. People have told us, well, I don't like that surgeon, right? And these surgeons will say, well, yeah, but I do 40 or 50 hysterectomies a month and their outcomes are flawless, right? And their data is flawless. It just is. Like you, you can't argue it. Now their staff is really hospitable, but people will say, particularly these two doctors I'm thinking about, I won't say their names. They complain about the doctors and they're not people people. But if you... If you compare it to the average right, surgeon that does hysterectomies, they do two a month or three a month, but they have really high patient interaction scores, right? They smile, they're handsome, they're fun, but they'll do an open one just to make more money. And so the, question, the, the, the thing that we have to do as we get back to education is we have to help people learn how this business works. You know, you, you've had lots of conversations about, well, a higher price doesn't mean better quality, right? But it does generally mean that in the consumer world. Well, a better acting physician, a nicer physician doesn't mean you're getting better outcomes. Do you want someone to fix your hip or not? Do you want someone to, you know, like I was in a spinal cord surgery last Tuesday in New York. You know, 
I'm watching someone operate on, you know, something the size, like half the size of your pinky, right? And then they're worried about the vibrations of the earth on the table. I mean, do you really care how the guy acts? He's removing a tumor from your spinal cord. And yet the neurosurgeon, when I spent some time with him after the surgery, he's like, you know, this is what I, the shit I get graded on. And I'm out of my mind about it. I'm going, this guy literally spent 40 years of his life working to do this work, 40. There are physician innovators that listen to this show and they Slack channel it and then they actually spreadsheet this show. And they, guys, if you're listening now, I can't be more black and white than this. If you want to find out the best surgeons, you go to the nurses that work in the surgery centers and they are the best rating system on the planet earth, but it's very time intensive. And, you know, if you're straight out of medical school and you want to do something cool, it's there's no, it's a lot of friction to get all that information, but that's where you're going to find the best surgeons there, in America. There's a guy that went to ORU with me named Paul Lynch, and he became an anesthesiologist and then an interventional pain doc. And he used to have this wonderful saying called the mom and dad test. And he would constantly ask the nurses, right? Well, hey, I'm going to refer this patient to your surgery center. Who passes the mom and dad test? Like, where are you going to send your parents, right? And you would talk to the nurse practitioners, PAs, and the nurses, and they knew exactly. They'd be like, hey, stay away from these three yahoos and go to this one. Because this guy, yes, he's a pain in the rear end, but he does brilliant work or she does wonderful work. And I always say to people, and I've told Paul this over the years, I always tell people, who passes the mom and dad test? Like, I'll get in the OR, right? Scrub in, do everything, which I've done a gazillion times. And I'll ask and I'll be like, all right, well, who's, you know, who do we stay away from in here? Because you've got six members of this in this ASC and I want to know who's the best. And then, you know, then you compare it to the data that we track. And most of the time, right, you get a lot of great information from the, from the nurses because they know what they're doing and they've been around for a long, long time. That's just an angel investor in the direct contracting space. Now that you've cashed <laughs> out, what are your metrics to look for? Hey, I'm an investor in the new business. Well, I'm, I know I'm you are cashed out, but I'm yeah. Okay. But if you were to look at what are the metrics for the ideal investment in direct contracting, what is the gap in the space? I'm going back to the original question I started with because yeah. last on last show, we said dealer's choice. You want to go macro or micro. I want to go micro. What is in your headspace, the gap that's in direct contracting outside of the problem you solved, which is everyone health and this futures contract, what is What's gap? What's gapping? What's missing right now in direct contracting to make it all simple for the buyer? That's healthcare. Engagement. Okay, engagement. There you go. Engagement <clears throat> is the number one problem facing the direct contracting industry as a whole. Hmm. Like you can go to HR and HR can have 500 great programs, right? Mm -hmm. All to, for the, they're called benefits for a reason. They benefit the employee and the member of the health plan. But how do you actually engage? We have real, we have employers that have one case a month. And then we have employers that we get 80% of all possible cases. What's the difference? Why does it work in one place and not in another? And that's the analysis and that's the work we're doing going forward. And if I was to start all over again, I would try to get a contract with every company that does direct contracting. And I'd say, I'm, I'm the king of engagement. I will show you exactly what to do. And here's my process. That is the missing key to everything. Because no matter what anyone says, no matter how good the prices are, 
it doesn't matter if you can't get people to use it. Yes. Hey, Dutch, if you, yes, if people want to find you, what's the best way to find you? And you know my last question, what it's going to be. So what's the best way to reach out to Dutch Rojas? LinkedIn and Twitter are the two great places to find me. If you Google Dutch Rojas, you will find me. People tell me, I don't know how to get a hold of you. I'm like, have you Googled me? <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can find me anywhere. The okay. bill collectors found me on Google. Come on, man. <laughs> and the second question is, if you get a banner overhead, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about futures and options. I'm going to be the tip of the spear and have a conversation. Let's get this problem solved. I'd like to see it solved in my lifetime. Got it. Dutch, thank you again. We love talking thank to you. We'll do it again soon, okay? I'm so happy you texted me. Thank you so much for your time, Ron. Talk soon. Bye now. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.